This is Asia's Farm to Fork Five Good Questions podcast, bringing you insights and views from across Asia's food value chain. Now for today's interview. Hi again, everybody. I'm Duke Hip, host of Asia's Farm to Fork Five Good Questions podcast, and we're lucky to have a great guest with us again today. Mr. Rahul Sawani is the president of Asia Pacific Corteva AgroScience, and he's joining us here live. Uh, hi, Rahul. How are you? I am doing very well, Duke, and it's a pleasure being with you today. Excellent. Well, in the spirit of the five questions, if it's okay, we'll, we'll jump right in. Let's go. Well, so again, uh, a lot of tough questions come with this podcast, and the first one is not, uh, not an exception to that. Earlier this year, we recognized World Food Day again. The theme for this year was water is life, water is food, leave no one behind. Uh, as we all know, agriculture is, is very taxing on our water supply, accounting for around 70% of all freshwater withdrawals globally. Given that water is becoming even more scarce due to climate change impacts and other weather events, how can we bridge the gap between water scarcity and food security? Absolutely great question, uh, Duke, uh, and, and a big question to start the podcast with. Um, I would firstly say, Weather challenges in agriculture have always been there, and resource challenges in agriculture have always been there. What we are starting to see now, more more so than ever, is with climate change, we are starting to see those challenges being more frequent, those challenges having a higher magnitude of impact, and those challenges just being much more extreme. We've all heard on the news extreme events and how the frequency of those is growing. And our farmers across the world in agriculture are dealing with those on a daily basis. What's also happening along with that is we've got a growing population still across the world. Not only a growing population, but a population that's becoming more prosperous. And that prosperous population has better knowledge on what food and diet they want and how they want it to be more nutritious for them, whether it's higher protein intake, whether it's fruits and vegetables that are much more nutritious, that's what that population is demanding. And a large portion of that growing population is here in Asia Pacific. There's also a growing need of staples with that growing population. What that means for us is as all of that takes place, we need to be able to have greater reliable yields. And those greater reliable yields depend again on dealing with those challenges of climate change, and of resources. In some sense, water, I've heard the debate about water for for drinking and water for agriculture being a conversation, what should you prioritize? And in my mind, it's not a agriculture versus drinking problem. It's a human resource utilization problem because all of us consume water and we consume food. To be able to get that food and that nutritious food that has a growing demand now, we have to be able to use this resource much more effectively for all of those purposes. The way I think of it in many ways is we've got to work on solutions that are holistic in preserving that water resource. We've got to get farmers for every little bit of that resource that they use to be able to get more yield out of it. I'll give you one example that we at Corteva have been pursuing for the last five years. We're sitting in Asia-Pacific, rice, one of our key stable food crops uh, in Asia-Pacific. Of course, rice is eaten across multiple countries and it's grown by smallholder farms. 
it's also got very traditional methods that have been there for decades. And in some cases, even centuries. What that means is, as we start thinking of resources and the availability of resources being different, and we want to get more yield at the same time, we want to look for ways of growing rice, which is a lot more friendly towards resources being used. We prioritize direct seeded rice as a key initiative for us. We we started uh, that as a key program, specifically in India in 2019, we collaborated with multiple industry players to be able to create a package of solutions. That package included seeds that were resilient to climate change, weed control that would allow for dealing with direct seeded rice where weeds are a bigger problem. That package also included teaching farmers practices of land preparation, mechanization, so that they were able to take full benefit of a direct seeded rice system, yet get higher yields. And of course, agronomy advisory, absolutely key. We've seen great adoption of this. Of course, we want to see even wider adoption and we want to collaborate with multiple players to be able to solve for this. This has the potential and it's demonstrated the potential of reducing water usage by up to 30% and reducing greenhouse gas emissions up to also 30%. It does well to prioritize food that our population needs, but it also does well to maximize the effectiveness of the resources that we need to get up while supplying the world with food. Thanks for that. Makes a lot of sense. It's not an either-or proposition, right, as far as the water is concerned. Absolutely. Well, um, yeah, next question. Time for another tough question. And really, besides water, another essential ingredient that enables more efficient crop yields, of course, is quality soil. Uh, unfortunately, again, agricultural practices have often been cited as a contributor to soil degradation. And so you kind of think again about the, the role of aggravation, uh, rather of agri- agriculture. <laughs> and and in, this, in this sense, is there a role for plant science in helping maintain healthy soils? And how does that contribute to overall agricultural productivity? It's such an important area, uh, Duke, uh, and an interesting area for the ag sector to look at. And there are many angles, like you said, to it, right? It continues the same theme that we were talking about, resources. And one of the most important resources any agriculture community needs is soil that's healthy. It's soil that can generate more, that has potential for the plant and provides the right nutrition to the plant. Of course, I I could go into a lot of detail, but I'll leave it for the experts to talk more about regenerative agriculture, crop rotation, etc. These are all hugely important fields that are growing in knowledge every single day. There's massive progress being made over there. I'll leave that to some other experts. What I will talk to you about today is a couple of areas that can be interesting for us to look at. So number one, green technology. And my thinking around green Green technology, the way I define it is, it's solutions that simulate and enhance natural occurrences. And they do that to better protect plants from weeds, from pests, from diseases. How does that work? I'll give you an example just to make it real rather than try and talk in theory about it. So we've got a great example from Corteva, a product called Rinscore. The Rinscore Active, it's been available in APAC markets now for the last four years. It's an active herbicide, specifically targeting rice markets, but also multiple other segments. 
it's got a much shorter shelf life or half life in the soil. And because it has a much shorter half life in the soil, it degrades quickly in the soil. And what that means is lesser environmental impact. That lesser environmental impact comes along with a profile that's extremely safe. It's got zero impact of mammalian as well as aquatic life and is being used in multiple applications in rice, like I said, for many years. It's products like those and replacing chemistries, which could not do that earlier, is something we have to do as an industry. And we've got to take those to hundreds of millions of farmers to be able to do that at scale. The second area I find really interesting, which there's been a lot of talk of in the industry, is biologicals. And we've all heard the word biologicals mentioned. And biologicals, I think of slightly differently. I think of them as nourishing the plant and the soil to maximize production in a way that does no harm to the environment. And I'll give you another example here. Uh, we at Corteva are launching a Utricia N product. This is a product that we've had through our uh, collaboration and now uh, our own company, Simborg, which we acquired earlier this year and closed that acquisition. This is an active ingredient. It is a nitrogen-fixing bacterium that actually supplies much-needed nitrogen to crops and does it through the growing season. What that means is it fits into, firstly, multiple crops and can be applied in wide application windows. It's a foliar application. It utilizes the same equipment that farmers use today for more spring and doesn't require any special equipment to be able to utilize. The best part about it, it complements traditional nitrogen management programs that farmers have today and widely used today. And it offers additional nitrogen without the risk of nutrient leaching or greenhouse emissions. And that's good for soil. Again, that role of soil in maintaining nutrients, beneficials, is absolutely key for us to be able to grow yields for years to come, for decades to come. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, exciting things that Okorte was working on in that space. Thanks for sharing that. Well, something you mentioned in, in one of these uh, so far, these answers thus far was smallholders about farmers. And I, I'd like to maybe pivot into uh, into that discussion point. Uh, with a third question, of course, here in Asia, you know, you, you really can't write the story of of food and ag without first starting with, of course, the, the narrative of the role of the farmer. Um, there are more smallholder farmers in this part of the world than anywhere else globally. And the smallest size farms, and of course, all the challenges that come with that are well documented. At the same time, sadly, it's far too many of these smallholders also make up a large portion of the poorest parts of society, some living on less than $2 a day. It's just hard to believe. What needs to be done to enable and empower these smallholder farmers, particularly here in Asia, to break the cycle as far as that, uh, that, that challenge around livelihood and realize better, a better way forward? Another great question, uh, Duke. And I, I think the statistics say somewhere over 500 million smallholder farmers around the world. And a vast, vast majority of those exist in Asia Pacific. What that means for us, firstly, is we cannot be successful with sustainable agriculture to, to nourish the world in the long term without them being successful. What that also means for us is they need the most help. Why do they need the most help? They're the most impacted with the two topics that we just discussed just now, right? Whether it's climate change and resource challenges like water or, or it's soil health 
in smallholder plots, typically in many cases, less than an hectare of land that many of these smallholders own. Their challenges and how we help them address it is going to determine the success of agriculture and the industry as a whole. What that means is, firstly, we've got to reach them. We've got to get much better at reaching them, giving them a seat at the table, making them a part of the dialogue, and being able to develop solutions along with them. I think we hear about reaching out and teaching them things, but I can tell you they have a lot to teach us. And when they have a lot to teach us, they need a seat at the table in helping us design those solutions and design those practices that are going to make the world successful and agriculture successful into the future. It is also about making sure we are able to get better products that deal with climate change that are safer to use and better products for the environment faster into markets. That's absolutely key. We've got to partner with governments, multiple stakeholders to be able to do that and change the profile of the solutions that they're using. What that also means is, I spoke about reach and reaching farmers just by ourselves, those 500 million farmers is, is never going to be easy. I'll give you an example of a program that we've successfully scaled up in India again. This is a program called the Pravakta program. Uh, Pravakta, which is a Hindi word, uh, translates into, into a leader, a local leader spokesperson. And what we've tried to do in this way is create a multiplier effect on the farmers that we can reach, take the farmers who want to give back to their communities and train them, give them experience, give them knowledge, and let them and enable them to go out there and act as multipliers for hundreds of farmers in their village and around their village. They've got to be part of the solution. Again, we, we cannot solve it alone. Of course, there's public-private partnerships that have a role to play, play in this. There's partnerships with multiple institutions such as finance providers, which will allow smallholders to be able to buy the products that will make them successful in the future while they deal with these challenges of climate change and world well negative resources. We've got to do this, and we've got to do this at scale. I'll give you another example. There is a rural program in Indonesia run by Prisma, an absolutely great example of how do you scale a model with smallholder farmers while teaching them best practices. It's one that we've participated in before, and it creates great impact. It's important to also just think beyond smallholders and think of systems that can be successful. Um, of course, when we look at geographies in Asia-Pacific, such as Australia, there are systems of largeholder farmers that are successful. But there are also systems in places like Japan, the JA system over there in Japan, uh, which I think of as a cooperative system, which is one of the best designed, has been there for multiple years, allows smallholders to come together and invest in technology and invest in being successful together. We've seen multiple geographies like India starting the FPO system, farmer producer organizations, again, trying to build scale across smallholders, both for inputs and outputs, and have them be able to adopt better practices and be successful and capture further value and invest in the farms. Those are systems that we've got to take across the geographies. We, governments, multiple stakeholders have to partner to 
make those system, systems successful. And, and then finally, if we take them to multiple parts of Asia Pacific, I think we will have learnings that we can utilize from these multiple systems and create an even better system. I, I think we all have a role to play in that. I mean, it really is a great answer. I think about the farmer. We talk so much about the farmer on this podcast, but considering their perspective specifically and more tools in the toolbox, right? And having more more at their disposal. So but the fourth question, I'd like to maybe stay on that topic as far as farmers and touch on a topic that, uh, you know, um, is a relevant one. And that's the aging, right? That's of the farming community around the world, but here in Asia in particular. Um, and we're seeing it happening all over the globe. You, you just mentioned Japan as an example. The average age of the farmer in Japan is 66 years old, the Philippines 57, as well as Thailand at 54. And so, um, you know, it's, it's time is marching on. And, and the question is, of course, you know, as, as, the, as this aging community continues to uh, march through, uh, through time, who will be growing our food tomorrow? And how do we entice, you know, that next generation, the younger generation of ag- into agriculture? And, and again, is there a role for, for technology maybe in helping the aging farmers uh, that are on the job continue to grow the food that we're depending on? Absolutely. Great question, Duke. Um, and it's a problem. You, you highlighted three countries, but it's a problem across our geographies, right? Every single country is facing this problem. I think there are three different solutions, and, and I'm going to take your question and pivot it a bit to, to three different areas, actually. So firstly, I think there's a role to play for multiple stakeholders in farming today. So number one, when we think of farmers today in multiple countries, we think of men, actually, right? And aging population of men today. I think there's a solution that is led by, by women, and there's a solution also has a role for younger farmers, apart from enabling older farmers. We've had this shift take place in multiple parts of Asia of rural communities sending people to work in the cities and sending people to work in large scaled up industries in cities. And as that population shift has taken place, again, a key resource, it's that same continuation of that same topic of resources. It's a dwindling resource in rural communities to be able to have people there to do farming for us. And mostly, it's been men who have gone to cities. There's an ever-increasing trend of women, as that has taken place, of taking up a bigger role in farming. Because they're, they're still there in those communities, and they're still farming. And they're the ones who are handling the finances. They're the ones who are making decisions now on how to farm and how to farm in the best way possible. Women have had a role, and this is not really a new role. They've had a role in farming and farming operations as a family unit for many, many years. They haven't had access to the same knowledge, education, that somehow the men had in those same communities. I think that's a great opportunity for us to change that today and bring that full force to bear on having a thriving agriculture rural community. We've got to equip them with agronomic knowledge. We've got to equip them with fiscal education. We've got to equip them with skills to help run their farms in an efficient way in terms of crop planning, selection of the right products, selection of the right windows, all of those different things. And of course, multiple technologies that are scaling up fast. There is a great example of this, and that that was one of the statistics you used. And in the Philippines, uh, we've got uh, Angelita Cirello, who's a recipient of the Presidential Award for the most outstanding 
corn farmer in the Philippines. What a great story. Angelita is a former ARI researcher and she's now a hybrid corn farmer after being an ARI researcher. She takes her knowledge that she's gained from all of those years in ARI and later to not only her farming operation, but she takes it also to women in the surrounding communities. She's able to utilize the profits that they generate and invest them in wells and water for those communities. She employs about 15 local indigenous people whose options are otherwise very limited in those communities. And remarkably, I can tell you that she is an outstanding person, but she's not unique. There are many communities and there are many women leaders who can become examples of the future, such as Angelita. And that's something we all have a role to play in, in empowering them and equipping them to be able to do that. Uh, the second aspect of youth, and I think it's really important, we are competing as an industry against industries that call themselves technology sectors. I would actually challenge that and say agriculture is really a technology sector, right? But somehow it's not positioned in that way. What we need to be able to do is we need to be able to educate and excite and motivate the next generation to get into farming. And that doesn't mean they're going to do what generations before them did. Yes, they will. But that also means they will adopt technology faster. They will utilize what they've learned growing up. Technologies such as social media and access to information. They will utilize all of that and bring the power of all of that into farming operations. And that's going to look very different than farmers of the past. And we've got to paint that picture and enable the younger generation. We've got multiple programs across Asia Pacific. Uh, there's a junior achievement program for the STEM field to be able to attract people into agriculture, younger students into agriculture. We've got a buddy for study program in India, again, attempting to do the same thing. Uh, we've got a VIA FSI program in Indonesia introducing youth in, into farming activities, again, to make that sector attractive and for them to see that it is truly a technology sector. It's a sector of not just the past and the present, but also of the future. And, and then you started with how do we give a better experience to farmers who are aging? And, and I can tell you there are multiple ways today for us to be able to do that. Number one, I think we've got solutions, drone technology, great example, but not the only example of reducing the amount of manual work that needs to take place on a farm. We've got to enable those farmers with those technologies. We've also got to bring to bear multiple communication methods that many of them use. I'm sure we all have been on calls during the pandemic. I've been on calls with my parents and they did not know technology that well. but They've all adopted technology, and that provides us a way to be able to bring knowledge to them in a more effective way. We've got to help them with taking knowledge through those ways to them to be able to have better farming operations. And then the final thing I would add is, I think farming is going to look very different, Duke, in the future. And what I visualize is, when we think of farmers in Asia Pacific today, we think of one thing, but it's going to look very different when you start thinking of millennial farmers of the future. And I look forward to that change. And I know we have to participate in enabling them to be successful. 
Thank you for that. No, it's a, it's all good points, you know, the harnessing the, the, and leveraging the power of the female farmer in this region for one, as you, as you started to with, and then the sort of the, where are we going with all of this and what it will look like in 10 years? We should come back and do this interview in 10 more years and, and we'll have a good idea of sort of how it all evolved over time, but certainly it's, it's certainly changing. Um, so it's all good points. Just to get your thoughts on one particular topic, the last question we would like to get into is around food, which of course is what this is all about. And specifically, to departure from the tough questions, what is your favorite food here in Southeast Asia, across Asia Pacific? We're sort of spoiled for choice in Asia, but is there one particular um, dish that you think of as your, as your favorite? Definitely the toughest question for studio. <laughs> and I can tell you why it's tough. Uh, I, I am a self-proclaimed foodie, and whenever I travel, I love to try everything wherever I am, right? And uh, that, that's what makes it so difficult. And I'm not going to answer by choosing one. I, I can tell you that, Duke, it's impossible to do, right? It, it's absolutely impossible to do. Whether I'm traveling in a place like Japan and eating a great sushi uh, with rice varieties different that are used in sushi in every single uh, prefecture over there, right? Or I'm traveling in Indonesia, that same rice used in a completely different way in a nasi goreng. Mm. Those are absolutely, absolutely great dishes that I thoroughly enjoy. And I can keep going on about this. I can name every single country and every single dish that, that I like. But one thing I would say is Asia Pacific, we compete well on a lot of things. But the one thing where we beat every other region around the world is probably the diversity of our flavors and our foods across Asia Pacific. And, and that's absolutely tremendous. And it's, a, it's always a pleasure being here in this region and travel over here. Been lucky enough to do that for now the last 10 years across the region and enjoy it every single time. Terrific. No, no argument here. Uh, that's, uh, we're hearing a common theme with the answers this year on the, uh, on the food question. So it is, it's a tough, tough, tough question to answer. Well, Rahul Sawani, thank you. You're officially off the hot seat and we appreciate your time today. And uh, again, look forward to talking again, hopefully in the future. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review and subscribe. We look forward to bringing you another five good questions interview. 